we present once again the adventures of Captain Corrin, space pirate, and insurance salesman. And featured myself as Quantum Jim. Tonight, Corrin takes on another piratical insurance salesperson? The crew are unusually restless after several weeks of sweeping the poop deck and dry dock, so I set the naughty Nautilus three stars to the right in order to find fresh plunder and a chance to brandish me cutlass. Saucy Susan had only just got her space peg legs when we spotted a viable target. Avast! Ah, avast yourself, you landlubber, you jack and ape, you cretin of the Cretaceous. Tis I, Admiral Mascot, space pirate, and insurance salesperson. No, that'd be my job. Uh, oh, you don't say. Do you by any chance have redundancy insurance? Because I believe you've just been trumped. Gar, but this is a turn up for the books. Here at Onion and Onion Financial Proof. Which has just been amalgamated with the Barnard Star Assurance Systems conglomerate. Corin, I'd like you to meet your new boss. Me. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Admiral. Admiral Escort. Here, take my hand. Ah, that be a cutlass you be jabbing in my face. But you know, the old habits die hard. So, Bossio, what's the lay of the land, so to speak? Well, <clears throat> well, first, we need you to stop doing that atrocious accent. Dar? It be getting complaints and, <clears throat> and frankly, it's never been consistent. Well, I guess I could drop it. You must. Secondly, where do you think these sketches are going? Is there a point to them? Well... It's a series of one-night jokes. Once you've heard one, Corin, you've heard them all. Sorry, are you talking as Admiral Ascot or as Josh here? I think you know who I'm talking to and who I'm talking as. Oh. Oh, indeed, Ulrika. Are my accents really that bad? A sign for your impeccable Poirot imitation, yes. Even my Nixon? Especially your Nixon. Well then, guess that's the end of an era. Yep. Do you need a hug? Yes. Yes, I do. Well, sucks to be you then. On with the show. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, they are Dr. M. Dentith. We are sitting side by side, popping corks in celebration here in Auckland, New Zealand on, on May the 20th. Do you know what May the 20th is? It's 16 days after May the 4th. That is correct, but also what it is, is the anniversary of the first episode of this podcast being put online. which happened in 2014, making this the seventh anniversary of this podcast. That's a lucky number. Lucky for some. Lucky for some. I had to say, and think of all the things we've achieved in the last seven years, and then I can't think of a single thing we've achieved. Well, I mean, we've, we've stuck around for seven years. That's an achievement. I've released two books. You have. We interviewed David Icke that one time. You interviewed David Farrier that one time. It's true. Actually, been a fair number of interviews and things. Mm. Do you think we should abandon the current format of the podcast and just turn it into a podcast where we exclusively interview people called David? Ooh, the Dave Caster's Guide to the Dave Odyssey. Mm. Dave. Mm. And you can only say the word Dave. Yep, just, put, just file that one away. 
we'll well we'll think about it. But Sheldon now, Dave, Sheldon. Mm. But we do also, have some actual. They're all dead, Dave. I, 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 sorry, I can't do that, Dave. No, they're all dead, Dave. They're dead, Dave. They're all dead, Dave. You're all dead, Dave. Well, that's true. Oh. I've been I've 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 been a dead Dave for a long time. Yeah, oh, what a twist. Now. Uh, we do have content for this. We have non-Dave related content. Yes, no, I don't I don't see any Daves in the footnotes, but I could be not looking closely enough. Uh, we have another episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre where we're going to be going through a lengthy paper. Is this a significant paper? It is. <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of a weirdly significant paper for the sheer fact that I wouldn't say that this particular paper is important other than the fact that people are going to be referring to this paper a lot. Okay. So as a kind of spoiler, I do not like this paper. Mm -hmm. I have big issues with this paper, and in an ideal world, this paper would have just sunk like a stone. But due to the fact that one particular person was involved in writing it, and due to the fact that there is one very particular policy that is advocated towards the end of the paper, this paper is going to be discussed by a lot of people. So this paper is going to be discussed by Curtis Hagen very, very soon. It's going to be discussed by David Cody relatively soon. It's going to be discussed by Charles Pigdom. I'm going to mention it in a variety of different places. Lee Basham is going to stick his dagger into the living corpse of Cass Sunstein. There is going to be an awful lot of discussion about this particular paper, which we're going to have to come back to again and again and again. So it ends up being a classic of the genre, not for the fact that I think it's particularly good, but because it's going to play a really outsized role in what people think about the literature going forward. So it's kind of interesting. So we had to discuss this paper to be able to discuss other papers, even though technically I'd be happy never discussing this paper ever again. Right. I think that's quite a good introduction to where this where this sits. So um, shall we shall we just play a chime and then and then we can start adding to the discussion on it ourselves? No, because the reason why I was vamping to such a mm -hmm. large extent is that I actually failed to copy the appropriate chime over to the podcasting deck, which means I'm basically filling in time oh, I see. as a little progress bar moves across I my computer what screen. That was. And I'm kind of hoping I've chosen the right sting here because I've I've set up the sting to go to a particular button, but I actually don't know whether in my haste to get this done whilst vamping at the same time, I clicked on the right file or the wrong file. And so we are going to find out whether I've made a wise or a bad decision in about three, two, one. Welcome to Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. And that is the equivalent of your tablet breaking down. It is a little bit, although I can usually cover it better, but it depends. Well, it doesn't take as long <coughs> for your tablet to reboot. That's probably true, actually. Whilst it actually, for some reason, takes a really long time to copy files from the laptop to the podcast desk. Yeah. And the thing was, as I was halfway through the process, I went, could have actually just played the sting from the 
a laptop anyway. There was actually no need to do that in real time. So but I was vamping for no particularly good reason. The magic of podcasting, people. Yep. Um, Writ large. <clears throat> the interesting thing, I guess, will be to see if you can be bothered going back to edit this bit out. No, no I can't. I really can't. Okay. Well, in that case, let's just barrel straight into it. We are going to be talking about today a paper called Symposium on Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures. This is in the Journal of Political Philosophy back in 2009, and it's written by Cass R. Sunstein and Adrian, and I think it's Vermule, not Vermule, but I mm -hmm. actually don't know. The thing about these two authors is that Cass R. Sunstein was one of Barack Obama's information czars. Mm. So it's not just that he's a prominent jurisprudence expert in the US who has also written on the notion of nudges, so small economic nudges you can make to change the trajectory of your society. He was also involved in the Obama administration, which means that the policy suggestion he's going to make along with Adrian at the end of this paper is something which has been noticed by an awful lot of people. So it goes away from simply academics talking about something which they might like to do to someone who has a position of authority that people are going, are you actually doing this thing? Mm. I mean, you're advocating it and you're in the kind of position to whisper in the president's ear. That's a little bit disturbing. Yes. We'll find out what that policy promotion is yes. towards the end. No of spoilers discussion. as yet. So, but, but yes, this is 2009, so Obama is in power um, at the time that this one comes out. And we out. lived in an age of hope. We did, for sort. Um, it's quite a long paper as well, so I think we're going to have to skip through it fairly fairly rapidly and, and um, jump Are over a lot of stuff. Are we going to tiptoe through the daisies? We might even. Um, there's a, there, there are a lot of examples, a lot of quite good examples, but... Um, uh, we can probably skip over a lot of that sort of stuff where it's just um, illustrating the points that they are going to make. Um, it has quite a long introduction as well, but I think um, the, the section of it that seemed to be their real sort of statement um, of intention reads, What causes such theories, conspiracy theories obviously, to arise and spread? Are they important and perhaps even threatening or merely trivial and even amusing? <laughs> what can and should government do about them? We aim here to sketch some psychological and social mechanisms that produce, sustain and spread these theories to show that some of them are quite important and should be taken seriously, and to offer suggestions for governmental responses, both as a matter of policy and as a matter of law. Which I think, I think that pretty much um, lets you know what you're in for in the coming uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 11, 13, 14, 15, 15, 15, about 16, 16 or 17, depending how you count it, sections. <clears throat> so let us, let us tear straight into these. Um, after the introductory bit, we have section 1, definitions and mechanisms, um, and section 1A is definitional notes. So that's good. They start off with definitions. That's what, that's what you want in a philosophy paper. Yeah, and what's interesting is that the initial discussion they have about what they take to be a conspiracy theory kind of turns out to be a fairly general and non-pejorative mm. gloss on a conspiracy theory. But they very quickly narrow their focus down yes. 
to a specific subset of these conspiracy theories, the ones which are harmful or have bad consequences. Mm. Um, yeah, so they start off by saying there's been much discussion of what exactly counts as a conspiracy theory and about what, if anything, is wrong with those who hold one. Of course, it would be valuable to specify necessary and sufficient conditions for such theories in a way that would make it possible to make relevant distinctions. However, the various views that people label conspiracy theories may well relate to each other through a family resemblance structure such that necessary and sufficient conditions cannot be given even in principle. Which I thought was an interesting point, but then yes, so, so they they give they give the sort of general um, account of it, but then uh, start narrowing it down. But but they're quite open about the fact that that's what they're doing. It's not it's not as we've seen in the past sometimes where people would hop between talking about things in general in a specific definition. They say at the very beginning, no, we're only talking about these sorts of conspiracy theories. But what sorts of conspiracy theories? Are they talking about? Well, their efforts to explain some event or practice by reference to the machinations of powerful people who attempt to conceal their role, at least until their aims are accomplished. And they're really only interested in the ones involving powerful people. And that when we talk about conspiracy theories, it seems to capture the presence, sorry, the essence of the most prominent and influential conspiracy theories about public affairs. Mm, yeah, so they, they, you know, they, they say right at the start, you know, non-powerful people, people just like you and I. Um, Are you saying that I'm not powerful? I, I'm saying exactly that. I'm saying your powers are limited, old man. Now I am the master. This, my staring at you doesn't work. It doesn't work as a podcast. No. Good steer, good piercing steer doesn't come across on a podcast. Um, so they say that, they say... Um, they, they're also, oh, actually, the, the one interesting thing I, I thought was, was nice that they said quite explicitly was in this definitional section, they say, of course, some conspiracy theories have turned out to be true, having just spoken about the ones that are obvious nonsense, and under our definition, they do not cease to be conspiracy theories for that reason, which is, puts them apart from some other ones that uh, we might have disagreed with. Yes, although, um, of course, I, I take it that actually, given their really general definition of what counts as a conspiracy theory, I pretty much have to say that. Well, no, I mean, basically, because they're saying a conspiracy theory is just any effort to explain some event or practice, then going, oh, by the way, anything which is a, a theory about a conspiracy which is true doesn't count as a conspiracy theory it means they're already artificially narrowing mm. down something which appeared to be a nice open definition from the beginning is, oh, but by the way, mm. we're not going to apply this label to everything which fits the definition. We're going to only apply the label to a subset of things that fit the definition, which means technically they're already contradicting themselves at this yeah, early part say, of the paper. They did say that they do not cease to be conspiracy theories just because they turn out to be true. Good point and well made. Mm. I've just been talking out of my arse. Hey, you'll never guess what just happened. Ah, the old classic the old tablet reset. Everything breaks. Technology down again. hates us. I'm just going to look over to shoulder while I read out the next bit of that bit, which is that um, we're such a professional podcast. We we well, that's how we got to to be going for seven entire years. It's, it's our also, high standards. It, it's and also commitment why, to quality. It's also why we used to have over 800 listeners a week, and now we have about 250. Meh. I mean, it's you know, yeah. it's, it's just math. It is. Uh, they say, our focus throughout is on demonstrably false conspiracy theories, demonstrably false conspiracy theories, such as the various 9-11 conspiracy theories, not ones that are true or whose truth is undetermined. Um, they say, within the set of false conspiracy theories, we also limit our focus to potentially harmful theories. Um, 
So again, yeah, as they say, it's going to be, this is all going to culminate in some sort of policy recommendations. So they're, they're, they're wanting to look at the sorts of conspiracy theories that you might want to have some sort of government response to, and ones that aren't actually doing any harm probably don't warrant that. And then furthermore, they go, look, our final narrowing condition is that we are concerned only with the many conspiracy theories that are false, harmful and, and unjustified, not in the sense of being irrationally held by those individuals who hold them, but from the standpoint of the information available in the society as a whole. Now, a recurrent problem I have with this paper, apart from not reading a section properly in reviewing it again, is that they're going to say, look, we're really only interested in conspiracy theories which are false, harmful, and unjustified. But they're not really going to say much about what makes a conspiracy theory false, harmful, or unjustified. No. They're going to make a lot of assumptions that certain conspiracy theories are false, harmful, and unjustified, and thus we must deal with them. But they do very little work to establish the theories in question are false, harmful, and unjustified. Mm. And um, they continue, I mean, th this... As a as a sort of a, as a survey as a as a big overall view of of the the literature in the area, I think it functions fairly well because they go through a whole bunch of stuff um, in this in this introductory definitional bit. Having talked about that, they spend a page on Popper and his views on conspiracy theories, and um, they make points about the effects of how open or, or closed a society is on how. Um, uh, how likely people are to believe conspiracy theories and how justified they are in believing those conspiracy theories, which then leads them to uh, Brian L. Keeley, obviously, who's talked about um, conspiracy theories in society, um, and in particular his his earlier claims that we've seen that uh, one of the problems with, with sticking to, as he would say, uh, uh, mature unwarranted conspiracy theories is that it ends up leading you into that sort of extreme sort of scepticism where if you... You know, if, if if you don't believe this powerful fundamental government body is is telling the truth, well, then how can you believe anything at all? And they use as their example for that one nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting they said this is not and is not intended to be a general claim that conspiracy theories are unjustified or unwarranted in all imaginable situations or societies. Um, I think they, they I think they sort of said that in relation to what they were saying, but what they were saying was in relation to what Brian was saying, which is the closest I think we've seen to someone pointing out that when Brian was talking about stuff, he wasn't actually talking about all conspiracy theories, just these unwarranted mature ones. Which yes, is which is kind of ironic, favor. because given that many people don't like this paper, it's one of the few cases where people seem to get Brian right. Mm. Um, they, they they have a good talk about um, Steve Clark and his his uh, mention of de degenerating research programs being one of the the problems with conspiracy theories or the the these, the, the the bad sort quote unquote. Um, and sort of rounding things out, they say, <clears throat> so far we've discussed some epistemological features of conspiracy theories in the abstract narrowed our focus to conspiracy theories that are false, harmful, and unjustified from the standpoint of the wider society, although they may be justified from the standpoint of individuals, given the information they've received, or within the closed epistemological network of the conspiracy theorists. 
and suggested institutional grounds for thinking that in a free and open society there is usually good reason to believe that most conspiracy theories will lack adequate justification. We now turn to the sociology of conspiracy theorizing, explaining the mechanisms by which such theories arise and expand. And I think here is where we might need to put our foot down on the accelerator a little bit to rock it through because there's um there's a lot of a lot of sections and subsections here. So this we're getting into subsection one B, how conspiracy theories arise and spread, which itself has eight uh, sections, eight yeah. sub subsections below it. Um, but so basically, to begin with, the, the the point of the section is why do people accept conspiracy theories? Basically, they say at the start, well, some some people may be suffering from a diagnosable mental illness, a, a paranoia or a narcissism or something like that, but um, that certainly doesn't cover uh, the majority of people who believe in these sorts of things. So what is it that brings them to accept the conspiracy theories, in particular the ones they're looking at, the ones that are harmful and false and what have you? And the first thing they talk about is... Probably an unfortunately named term. It is a little really. bit in this day and age. And that they talk, except that this, this day and age, 2009 is actually still this day and age. Well, it is and it isn't. 2008, uh, one of the things people always uh, remind me when talking about progress is that 2008, Barack Obama campaigned on uh, marriages between a man and a woman. So that was... that was not too long ago. That was... Um, oh, the past is a weird place. But anyway, so they call this... Crippled epistemology. Yeah, it's not the nicest of words. And we are going to see this term used an awful lot in future. Mostly as people criticising the notion of a crippled epistemology, but it is going to be echoed by a lot of writers over the time, talking about Sunstein and Vermeule, and going... Actually, I, now I don't think I'm being consistent with Vermeule. Did I, was I say yes, Vermeule you, or Vermeule? You said Vermeule at the start. I'm just going to use it interchangeably. One, yeah, you'll be right know. eventually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yes, the crippled epistemology stuff is something we're going to see a lot of as time goes by. Okay, so what does it mean then? They start by saying, um, for our purposes, the most useful way to understand the pervasiveness of conspiracy theories is to examine how people acquire their beliefs. For most of what they believe that they know, human beings lack personal or direct information. They must rely on what other people think. In some domains, people suffer from a, quote-unquote, crippled epistemology in the sense that they know very few things and what they know is wrong. Which is basically the claim that conspiracy theorists hang out with other conspiracy theorists, and conspiracy theorists are stupid. Mm. Or at least, yes, uh, 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 believe things that are not true. Yes, and they are subject to erroneous have... beliefs. Mm. Now, actually, what's kind of interesting about this is that it's getting awfully close to what's called standpoint epistemology in philosophy. So if you're into standpoint epistemology, you take it that people with particular standing in society have better access to certain types of information. So, for example, if you are a woman, then from your standpoint, you know a lot more about institutional sexism than a man is going to experience because your standing in society means you experience these things in a way that a man is never going to experience them. In the same respect, if you're Māori, then your standing means you are more likely to experience racism than, say, a Pākehā, which, of course, Pākehā will not experience racism in the sense that Māori ever do. Yeah. So standing ends up being important with respect to particular types of epistemology, and the whole crippled epistemology is a kind of standpoint theory. 
except that it's taking it from the case of people with particular standing have better access to some information about the world and reversing that by saying, well, there are certain people who have standings that actually mean they know less about the world rather than more. Mm. Um, the, other, the other bit that stuck out for me in this first section is that straight away they start talking about the link between conspiracy theories and terrorism. So they haven't um, explicitly said, here's the section where we're talking about the, the potential harms of it, but one of the things that they, they um, start bringing up right from the beginning is that acts of terror can be uh, inspired or provoked by conspiracy theories. Yes, there is a little bit of the old guilt by association mm. going on now. Um, so, carrying on to sub-subsection 1.b.2. Rumours and speculation. You've talked about rumours a bit in the past, haven't you? I have. I've, I've written on rumours mm. in the past. Well, there we go. So this should be right up your alley. Indeed, it's quite interesting because the PDF I've got of this has me commenting on it back around about 2009 when I was working on my first rumour paper. So actually a lot of my focus in the original annotations is looking at rumour and gossip. And the conspiracy theory stuff is very much a secondary consideration for that reading back in those days. Mm. Um, so yes, at, at this point um, they're saying, of course it is necessary to specify how exactly conspiracy theories begin. Some such theories seem to bubble up spontaneously, appearing roughly simultaneously in many different social networks. Others are initiated and spread quite intentionally by conspiracy entrepreneurs who profit directly or indirectly from propagating their theories. That would be your Alex Jones or your David Icke. Mm, conspiracy entrepreneur. I think they'd quite like that label. I mean, we're, mm -hmm. we're kind of unsuccessful conspiracy mm. entrepreneur yes. with, our, with our podcast, with diminishing listenership. Mm. Um, Do you follow Jim Sterling? No. Because he did a, a special this week about how ever since they came out as trans, they've been losing thousands of followers per vi vi video. So they were about to hit a million subscribers. And now they've held a special saying, congratulations, we're now at just under 900,000 subscribers and numbers are going down. What a milestone we've been hitting. It's all thanks to you, thanks to you, the viewership, which is fleeing at a rate of knots. Mm. Quite well done. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad I'm not part of the problem because I was never part of the solution. Yeah, I don't think that actually makes yeah. things any better for Jim. No, probably not. Um, so, yeah, the, That's the, the, Jim Stephanie Sterling. Yeah. Uh, whenever a bad event has occurred, rumours and speculation are inevitable. Conspiracy theories, like rumours, may simultaneously... Oh, sorry, I, I, I should have said. Whenever a bad event has occurred, rumours and speculation are inevitable. There is then a gap there. I don't want to be accused of misquoting things. But then, a little bit later, it continues. Conspiracy theories, like rumours, may simultaneously relieve a primary emotional urge and offer an explanation to those who accept the theory of why they feel as they do. The theory rationalises while it relieves... So in the first subsection, we were told that conspiracy theorists are stupid and they hang around with other stupid people. Now we're being told that conspiracy theorists are just, they're just too emotional. Well, I don't know about too emotional, but they're saying there's they're definitely saying there's an emotional component um, to how these things can be spread. I don't know. We're getting into, we're getting, as they said at the start, we're getting into a bit of sociology here. I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable. I feel like I'm wading in, in, in treacherous waters. I, I associate with sociologists all the time. Uh, do you wade in them, with the, the waters? 
No, but I have drunk with them. Ah, close enough. So I've I've passed the water mm. with sociologists. Okay. Well, then you'd best better, best better be my guiding hand here. Um, so we moving on to sub 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 section three. Uh, we now start talking about conspiracy cascades. The next the few role sections of information. Mm, the next few sections will be talking about conspiracy cascades, and the first one is the role of information in such. So they're talking about um, the concept of information cascades, which is with the fact that the, the, the fact that some people might endorse a view kind of encourages others to endorse it, even if they might not have it by themselves. So they they, they um, give the case of sort of, you know, the, one person says something, this person who kind of agree, was kind of thinking that way, when they hear the first person say, says, okay, yep, I'm going to say that thing as well. And then the next person who maybe was a little bit on the edge and wasn't so certain even at all, when once now that he hears two people say that, um, then is now is now happy to to get on, to, to ride the train themselves. And so the idea is that the more, even if, if something had shaky foundations, the more people who say they agree with it, the more people say they agree with it, I think. Now, I want to point out that they use a series of examples here, yeah. and the people in their examples are Andrews, Barnes, and Charlton. Charlton. Would Charlton. Been, would have been better if it was Charleston, I think. Yes, I think so. Mm. Do the Charleston. Da, 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 Yes. Uh, carrying on, as though that had never just happened. Um, they say, in a standard pattern, the conspiracy theory is initially accepted by people with low thresholds for its acceptance. Perhaps the theory is limited in its acceptance to those with such thresholds. But sometimes the informational pressure builds to the point where many people with somewhat higher thresholds begin to accept that theory too. And when many people hold that belief, those with even higher thresholds may come to accept the theory leading to widespread acceptance of falsehoods. In theory, a conspiracy theory might be justifiably held by many, even though it is false and harmful, and even though only a few early movers suggested a strong commitment to it. Now, this is all building upon previous work that Sunstein has done on informational cascades mm. and echo chambers. So this is something he's written on quite a lot. And it's interesting to see how people treat this in the literature, in that there's, there's a kind of intuitive plausibility to the idea of informational cascades, that information kind of flows through a network and sometimes some beliefs start with only a very few people at the top and yet due to belief thresholds being met, the belief suddenly spreads like wildfire in that network. But the actual discussion as to how information flows through these cascades is still very contentious. Mm. So the model he's presenting is something that Sunstein is quite convinced by, but other people are going, no, that's probably simplifying the story down to a very large degree. And that it's kind of doing a peer pressure notion of how belief is inherited as opposed to, well, maybe these beliefs fit in with other people's beliefs. It's not about crossing particular thresholds, it's beliefs matching with other beliefs that make it a lot easier to adopt these beliefs as time goes by. 
It does, though, um, seem to speak to the sort of model which will come up later in this paper, but which is also the sort of thing we've talked about with, like, Joe Yusinski, about how a conspiracy theory may have a lot of believers, but there may actually be only be a small core who are sort of hardcore believers in it, and a lot of the rest of them may just sort of have a, have a, a soft belief in it and not actually be that um, committed. You've got a soft belief in it. Yes, I do. Uh, but so, so move, moving ahead, just skip through the next bunch because they're all talking, just expanding on the idea of how conspiracy cascades Because we've got the role work. of reputation. Indeed, we have the role of reputation. As they say, reputational pressures help account for conspiracy theories and they feed conspiracy cascades. In a reputational cascade, people think they know what is right or what is likely to be right, but they nonetheless go along with the crowd in order to maintain the good opinion of others. So that's even more explicitly peer pressure, I guess. Yeah. In that yeah. one. And then we've got the role of availability. Mm. Informational and reputational cascades can occur without any particular triggering event. But a distinctive kind of cascade arises when such an event is highly salient or cognitively available. Conspiracy theories often driven through the same mechanisms. A particular event becomes available and conspiracy theories are invoked both in explaining it and using it as a symbol for broader social forces and large narratives about political life casting doubt on accepted wisdom in many domains. Which sounds like the fact that any time there's a mass shooting, people jump on it and say, false flag. False flag? False flag. False flag. Um, and then the last aspect here in Conspiracy Cascades is the role of emotions. Um, so they say, um, it is clear that effective factors and not mere information play a large role in the circulation of rumours of all kinds. Many rumours persist and spread because they serve to justify or to rationalise an antecedent emotional state produced by some important event, such as a disaster or a war. So, yeah, getting again, getting into the, the, the idea that there are, there are emotional factors at play, which I guess already kind of uh, relates to the, the reputational business as well, people wanting to feel good about themselves or, or caring about what other people feel towards them. I mean, my issue with this particular emotional stuff that comes up again and again and again in this paper is that why are we picking on conspiracy theorists for the role of emotion in the adoption of these beliefs? I mean, surely, if they're right, this is just a recurrent feature of all informational cascades mm. with or without conspiracy theories being involved. Yeah, I mean, it, it does sort of seem like, well, there are, there are these informational cascades and they can happen to conspiracy theories too. But yes, I think everything that, that comes up here could be applied more generally. Yes, I mean, for example, emotional attachments of this particular kind are going to explain a lot of political beliefs. If you take Sunstein and... I'm trying to work out a new pronunciation for Vermule or Vermule. Vermule. So, yes, for Sunstein and Vermuli, it would apply to politics as well. I get very emotional about my politics. I mean, there was the budget today. People got very emotional about the budget. No, they always do. Neil Jones cried and other people cried with dismay. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, that, as, as they put it, the applications to conspiracy theories should not be obscure. When a terrible event has occurred, acceptance of such theories may justify or rationalise the effective state produced by that event. Consider conspiracy theories in response to political assassinations. In addition, such theories typically involve accounts or rumours that create intense emotions, intense. such as indignation, thus producing a kind of emotional selection that will spread beliefs from one person to another. Of course, evidence matters, and so as long as there is some kind of process for meeting falsehoods with truth, mistaken beliefs can be corrected, 
but sometimes the conditions for correction are not present. Do the dun dun dun. It sounded a bit ominous to me, I think. You do realise you could actually just press the button yourself. Well, I could, but I've got to, go, have to re reach part of your tablets in the way. I'd have to elbow you aside, which I'll do quite happily, if that's the invitation. Just the good... Good elbow right to the face, so Sorry, I can the, dive onto the button the look like on a your maniac. Face on the idea of committing physical harm upon my mm. person indicates that actually brightens my day. You really, I'm thinking really about it now. <laughs> you sure are. Yes. I'm scared. Well, maybe we can just uh, adjust the thing so that it, you proceed the dun 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 with the sound effect of you going oh me nose, but. We won't need to do that now because we should carry on. We're done with talking about conspiracy cascades, but there are still more factors that um, uh, influence why conspiracy theories can become accepted. Like group polarisation. Group polarisation. Uh, they say there are clear links between cascades and the well-established phenomenon of group polarisation by which members of a deliberating group typically end up in a more extreme position in line with their tendencies before deliberation began. Which again sounds a little bit, a little bit sociology. Always sounds a little bit psychological. I'm frightened. Hold me. No, you wouldn't hold me at the end of the intro this week. So I'm not holding you now just because you're afraid of a bit of sociology and psychology. Yeah, I'll be honest. I just wanted you to move in closer so I get a bit, a bit of shot at the old nose with my elbow there. Um, your, your violent ten tendencies are making me think of Bowrunger. Mm. Mm, as well you should, as yeah. well you all should. There's actually a whole bunch of New Zealand references that people overseas are just not going to no, get in this episode But that's their all. fault, quite frankly. Well, it's true. Mm. Oh, that is probably why we keep driving away our listenership. Well, that might have something to do. We talked about the NBA last week. I mean, I know you don't remember, but we actually talked about something that was of interest um, to people in the States the and not at all. The Boat Association. Yeah, that's what we did. Talked about boats. It was great. I'm sorry you missed it. I like boats. I'd, I'd remember us talking about boats. Yeah, sailing's kind of a sport when it's done competitively. What's sailing? Exactly. Um, so they say, still talking about group polarisation, for purposes of understanding the spread of conspiracy theories, it's especially important to note that group polarisation is particularly likely and particularly pronounced when people have a shared sense of identity and are connected by bonds of solidarity. These are circumstances in which arguments by outsiders unconnected with the group will lack much credibility and fail to have much of an effect in reducing polarisation. Now, what's particularly interesting about this is, I mean, so Sunstein is very much your classic liberal and thinks that the way to enact any kind of political change is through consensus building. And there's kind of been a theory within liberalism that consensus is kind of how things are always meant to work. And there's been pushback about this, particularly recently, with people going, actually, when we look at political situations in the past, there wasn't much consensus in the past, which is kind of why, in the early 20th century, left-wing governments in Australasia and the UK engaged in massive rebuilding works or development to welfare states, because they knew that they weren't going to be able to get a consensus with the Conservatives or Tories across the aisle, so they simply press forward with what they thought was good, and then the idea of consensus building with the kind of liberalism of the 60s has eroded that by going, you're not allowed to make big, bold changes. You've got to get everyone on board to get a political consensus going forward, rather than the old way of doing things, which was to go, well, actually, if we just do the thing now, the other side kind of has to live with it or lump it. Mm. 
So the, is, so the point here is not actually to make a political point as to which is the right system to use. The point is Sunstein and Vimelay's notion of polarization is something which is considered to be ever so slightly contentious for the sheer fact that people are going, we're not actually entirely sure that polarization is pathological in the way that Sunstein and Vermeil think it is. Mm. And then finally, we have sub 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 sub, sub section eight, selection effects, um, which is basically, uh, they say, a crippled epistemology can arise not only from informational and reputational dynamics within a given group, but also from self-selection of members into and out of groups with extreme views, which I guess sort of makes, makes some sort of sense. The people who are in these communities, I mean, look at the um, targeted individuals, communities, people who have self-selected into a community like that are much more susceptible to the sorts of conspiracy theories that they go throwing around. Although, once again, this is kind of buying into the notion of centrism within a liberal political framework, because as Jack Bratich, a media, scholars, me, media studies scholar, has pointed out, liberalism is all about going, well, anything which is left or right of the centre is de facto extreme because the only sensible views are centrist views. So once you start to deviate from the centre, then actually you're going to extremes no matter how far left or right from the centre you're actually getting. Mm. But anyway, all and of actually, this... Actually, oddly enough, one of Sunstein's books is called Going to Extremes. Yeah. Now, all of this leads us into section two, governmental responses which is the guts of it. And good God, I'm scrolling and we still have lots to cover. So I'm going to start reading faster, I think. Um, so it begins. What can the government do about conspiracy theories and what should it do? One, government might ban conspiracy theories, somehow defined. Two, government might impose some kind of tax, financial or otherwise, on those who disseminate such theories. Three, government might itself engage in counter-speech, marshalling arguments to decredit conspiracy theories. Four, government... Well, I, I'm counting on my hand, but I'm counting one every time. I think I'm just gesturing like Bill Clinton at this point. Government might formally hire credible private parties to engage in counter-speech. Five, government might engage in informal communication with such parties, encouraging them to help. Each instrument has a distinctive set of potential effects or costs and benefits, and each will have a place under imaginable conditions. Our own policy claim here is that government should engage in, and here it is in italics, cognitive infiltration of the groups that produce conspiracy theories. Which involves a mix of three, four, and five. And they, sort of, they, they start out by saying, you know, maintaining an open, as open a society as possible, I guess, is a good first step in uh, discouraging the proliferation of conspiracy theories, but we're talking about what governments can actually do. Um, I mean, let's talk about their suggestion. Let's do that. We suggest two concrete ideas for government officials attempting to fashion a response to such theories. First, responding to more rather than fewer conspiracy theories has a kind of synergy benefit. It reduces the legitimating effect of responding to any one of them because it dilutes the contrast with unrebutted theories. Second, we suggest a distinctive tactic for breaking up the hardcore of extremists who supply conspiracy theories, cognitive infiltration of extremist groups, whereby government agents or their allies, acting either virtually or in real space, and either openly or anonymously, 
will undermine the crippled epistemology of believers by placing doubts about the theories and stylized facts that circulate within such groups, thereby introducing beneficial cognitive diversity. So effectively, a person connected with the Obama administration, they said, look, the best way to deal with bad conspiracy theories would be for the government to encourage agents of the government to infiltrate conspiracy theory fora and kind of seed doubts about those conspiracy theories, which is the same thing as saying the best way to defeat conspiracy theorists would be to engage in a conspiracy against the conspiracy theorists. Now, I don't know about you, but if I read this in a publicly available academic article and I was a conspiracy theorist of a particular stripe, I'd be going, look, they're literally planning to do the thing that we think they've been doing for a while. They actually might be doing that particular thing. Mm. I mean, it seems a bit stupid to say, oh, the best way to solve conspiracy theories? Conspire against the conspiracy theorists. They'll have, they'll have no reason to believe in conspiracy theories after we've conspired against mm. them. So I think they're going to say that almost explicitly later on, but first of all, sections 2A and 2B are basically setting up the groundwork and the considerations, I suppose, that they want us to uh, think they've, they've taken on board when coming to these views. So section 2A is, do conspiracy theories matter? So on the one hand, not a lot of people, comparatively speaking, um, hold to these ones, especially the extreme ones. And uh, as we said before, of the people who hold them, a lot of them are sort of quasi-believers or soft believers in the theory. Um, so, not, so, so that might make you think, well, maybe they don't actually matter that much if they're not that big. But on the other hand, as they say, a belief in conspiracies has often played a significant role in producing violence. Conspiracy theories have had large effects on behaviour, and even if only a small fraction of adherents to a particular conspiracy theory act on the basis of their beliefs, that small fraction may be enough to cause serious harms. And they go on to talk about the Oklahoma City bombing, of course, which was a couple of guys. Or, may, or was it a couple? Or was it two? Or was there the third man? Um, who who were strong believers in this conspiracy theory and and, and they were able to cause um, enormous damage and great loss of life. Uh, but that leads them on to section 2B, which are the, the, the various dilemmas one encounters uh, when thinking about this and their responses. And they, they, have, they have two dilemmas that they consider. They say, the first dilemma is whether to ignore or rebut the theory. The second is whether to address the supply side of conspiracy theorizing by attempting to, to debias or disable its purveyors, to address the demand side by attempting to immunize third party audiences from the theory's effects, or to do both if resource constraints permit. And that's not a dilemma. A dilemma is supposed to have two options and two options only. You're not allowed to choose both. Anyway. <clears throat> I mean, surely that depends on whether you think your or is inclusive or exclusive. Well, traditionally the word dilemma is, is specifically the, where you have two things that you must choose between. So that's so it is, it's always exclusive. But on the other hand, I'm being uh, pedantic about definitions, and as a good linguist I should point out that language changes over time, and so sticking to an old definition of a word uh, is actually not justifiable. So You've just been hoist by your own petard. I've literally, well, I kind of have, yes. Um, so, in, in, the, in the ignore or rebut dilemma, they sort, of, they, they, they sort of look at essentially the upsides and downsides of both. So they say ignoring a conspiracy can make it look like it's just not worth consideration, it's, it's insignificant, 
or it may look like the government can't rebut it. Like, the, 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 you know, may, maybe the government's being silent because there's just nothing to say because it's not worthy of consideration. Maybe the government's being silent because they know they can't. They know it's true and they know they can't deny it. And obviously, um, as, as they say, the suppliers of the conspiracy theories will propose the second inference. But then they get concerned that maybe rebutting a conspiracy theory will inadvertently legitimate a conspiracy theory. Mm. They say, um, uh, well, yeah, th th they go through that point initially saying um, there is the, the, the opposite risk of you make it look like it is worth considering if you if you if you deign to um, give attention to it, yeah, which is the infamous story about why NASA were very confused about what to do with moon landing hoax conspiracy theories because mm. they would go, well, look, every time we talk about it, people go, oh, they're spending a lot of effort trying to tell us we went to the moon. There must be something they're covering up, and if they didn't say anything about it, people go, well, NASA's got no response to when people talk about how we didn't go to the moon, that indicates that they, they can't rebut the idea that it's all a cover-up and a conspiracy. And if you end up going, well, it's not really worth our time, people go, oh, NASA doesn't think we need to know about what really happened, so there must be something suspicious about the story anyway. And so NASA were going, well, we're kind of damned if we do. Mm. and damned if we don't. And we seem to be in some kind of weird trilemma and that there are just too many options. So, yeah, they, they, they do an on, on the one hand and then on the other hand, and then they do an on the, on the other other hand, saying, however, the concern that rebuttal will inadvertently legitimate a conspiracy theory overlooks an important synergistic gain. Rebutting many conspiracy theories can reduce the legitimating effect of rebutting any one of them. When government rebuts a particular theory while ignoring most others, the legitimating effect arises at least in part because of a contrast between the foreground and the background. The inference is that government has picked the theory it is rebutting out of the largest set because this theory, unlike the others, is inherently plausible or is gaining traction among some sectors of the mass audience. The more theories government rebuts, the weaker is the implicit legitimating signal sent by the very fact of rebuttal. I just, I, I just like saying but a lot, to be perfectly honest. True, and mm. rebuttal has got a great rolling sound. It really does, yeah. yeah. But, so that's, that's a, an interesting other, other aspect to um, whether, whether or not it is good uh, or not to give these things oxygen. Um, and so then they turn to their other dilemma um, about the audience. They say, should governmental responses be addressed to the suppliers, uh, the suppliers of conspiracy theories, with a view to persuading or silencing them, or rather be addressed to the mass audience with a view to inoculating them from pernicious theories. Though, of course, these two strategies are not mutually exclusive. Um, but they say, you know, but, but maybe you don't have the resources to pursue both strategies, so in that case, which one do you choose? Um, and they point out that conspiracy suppliers are notoriously resistant to contrary evidence, especially when it's coming from the people they think are responsible for the conspiracies, the government. Mm. Um, they mentioned the idea that drafting in uh, experts to, to bolster the government's case can help, but then that runs the dangers of you. You have to be very careful to make these make it sure that the experts are seen to be independent from the government, because if, if there's any suggestion that the government is, is sort of influencing uh, these experts they've brought in, then they'll be dismissed just as quickly um, as people will want to dismiss the government. 
Um, and so because changing the minds of these sort of these hardcore conspiracists, these conspiracy suppliers uh, can be too hard, then governments are often motivated or may be motivated to communicate to just to the public at large. Yeah, so you change your audience there. Mm. You move away from let's persuade the conspiracy theorists, hereby defined as the hardcore of people who are really, really sure about it, to, well, we can't change their minds, or at least it might be really hard to change their minds. So what about the undoctrinated wider public? Maybe we can talk to them instead and inoculate them against these pernicious conspiracy theories. Mm. However, they say... The problem with this line of argument, however, is that there are intrinsic costs to the strategy of giving up on the hardcore of conspiracy theorists and directing government efforts solely towards inoculating the mass audience. For one thing, the hardcore may itself provide the most serious threat. So again, your, your, your Timothy McVeigh's there. Um, for another, a response geared to a mass audience, whether or not nominally pitched as a response to the conspiracy theorists, will lead some to embrace rather than reject the conspiracy theory the government is trying to rebut. This is the legitimation dilemma again. To begin a program of inoculation is to signal that the disease is already widespread and threatening. Now, in this respect, what they're referring to is the backfire effect. That sometimes talking about a thing that you want to refute or debunk is also going to be the kind of thing which brings new people into the thing you're trying to rebuke and refute. I'm just making up words now. Uh, so there's actually a nice example of this in our history. So about 15 years ago, there was a documentary about the rapprochement between Taranaki Iwi and the Moriori called Feathers of Peace. And Feathers of Peace was a documentary talking about how the Moriori were driven out of the mainland of the North Island to settle in the Chathams. And this was due to a variety of factors, including col colonization, warfare between I Iwi and, and the like, and how there had been a process in the last few years which meant that there was a rapprochement between the Iwis, which had formerly been antagonistic towards each other. Now, an interesting facet in our history is that for a period of time, for reasons which aren't really particularly clear, Pākehā in particular were taught that the Moriori were a pre-Māori tribe, probably of Melanesian or or origin, who had arrived in Aotearoa, New Zealand before the Māori did, and that they were driven out by the Māori before the Europeans arrived. Now, this is not this is not true. This is a, what we might call fake news. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a, a false history of the place. And the documentary Feathers of Peace is very clear about what really happened. But people did a whole bunch of surveys, both before the documentary played on public TV and afterwards, and they discovered that despite the fact that the documentary reiterates the real history, most Pākehā, after watching the documentary, were convinced that the fake history was correct. And the survey holders went, well, we just have to assume that these people watched the documentary, but they didn't pay any attention to it. They simply watched the documentary whilst recalling things they had learnt at school. Mm. So, and then people went, well, perhaps part of the issue here 
is that the false history is reiterated in the documentary to be debunked, but people didn't take the debunking in. They simply heard the reiteration of what they'd been taught at school and went, oh, of course, I remember that, and paid no attention to the voice going, of course, this part of the history is completely wrong. What really happened, people weren't paying attention by that point. Mm. Now, the backfire effect is contentious. There is a lot of literature being produced in social psychology and sociology to this day, questioning as to whether it, A, is as big an effect as people make it out to be, and also, B, what other factors may contribute to this effect. So it is contentious, but it is something which is studied and appears to be, at least if not a real effect, something which you can point to in a variety of interesting cases. Mm. So all of this brings them to um, section 2B3. Which has the delightful title, Cognitive Infiltration and Persuasion. Mm. So they say, rather than taking the continued existence of the hardcore as a constraint and addressing itself solely to the third-party mass audience, government might undertake legal tactics for breaking up the tight cognitive clusters of extremist theories, arguments and rhetoric that are produced by the hardcore and reinforce it in turn. One potentially promising task is cognitive infiltration of extremist groups. By this we do not mean 1960s-style infiltration with a view to surveillance and collecting information, possibly for use in future prosecutions. Rather we mean that the government efforts might succeed in weakening or even breaking up the epistemological complexes that constitute these networks and groups. I mean, I like how they go, look, it's not going to be as bad as the 1960s. Mm. We're just going to infiltrate your groups and so disinformation. Dis I mean, it's completely different. Well, counter-information, I suppose. That yes, but the people in those groups yes. is going to yep. see that as a disinformation ploy. Yeah, so just, uh, just going, look, we've got the most noble of purposes. That's why we're going to infiltrate your group and try and persuade you not to believe the things you do isn't the kind of thing that people go, oh, of course, I mean, that's fine. I mean, we're all idiots, and we're overly emotional as well. So it's really good you're infiltrating our groups and telling us to be sensible. Mm. So as they put it, um, going into a bit more detail, government agents and their allies might enter chat rooms, online social networks, and even real space groups and attempt to undermine percolating conspiracy theories by raising doubts about their factual premises, causal logic, or implications for action, political or otherwise. Now, I realise that this meme is a lot more recent than this paper, but all I can think of is the guy with the coffee mug and the table at the university with the persuade me sign yeah, on the front mind, of it. Yeah, change my mind. Change my mind. So we're just getting a whole bunch of, of these reply guys and we're just going to sit them inside chat rooms and go, you know, change my mind. Persuade me that your conspiracy the theory is true. That's basically what they're advocating. Mm. Then they look at the idea of should this be done anonymously? Or should it be done by people who are open about the fact that they are coming from the government? And so they say, well, on one hand, if, if they're open about working from the government, then there are some people who will just discount anything they have to say right from the start. It doesn't yeah, matter. Of, hello, my name's John Doe. I work for the CIA, and I really want to join your 9-11 inside job conspiracy theory group because I really want to talk to you about the doctrine of our Lord and Saviour, the Director-General of the CIA. Mm. On the other hand, if you do it anonymously, then that has the added risk that should anyone get found out, that's going to make things a hell of a lot worse. We, that, that's sort of, again, proof positive that people are conspiring. On the other, other hand... 
there could be a good side to doing this anonymously and then getting unmasked because that could then sow discord among these conspiracy suppliers now that they know there are these undercover agents, these infiltrators in their midst. It could, um, it could, it could just sort of cause, cause conflict within the group as people become more paranoid and less distrustful of their compatriots. Is there a on the other, other, other hand? No, oh. no, I ran out of hands at that point. That's true, I mean, they actually do seem to only have three arms mm. in the story. Mm. And a little bit of question about whether this should be done online purely or, or talking to actual human beings in the real world. Um, so all of this leads us to their conclusion, which uh, reads thusly. <clears throat> Our goal here has been to understand the sources of false and harmful conspiracy theories and to examine potential government responses. Most people lack direct or personal information about the explanations for terrible events, and they're often tempted to attribute such events to some nefarious actor, in part because of their outrage. The temptation is least likely to be resisted if others are making the same attributions. Conspiracy cascades arise through the same processes that fuel many kinds of social errors. What makes such cascades most distinctive and relevantly different from other cascades involving beliefs that are also both false and harmful is their self-insulating quality. The very statements and facts that might dissolve conspiracy cascades can be taken as further evidence on their behalf. These points make it especially difficult for outsiders, including governments, to debunk them. Some false conspiracy theories create serious risks. They do not merely undermine democratic debate. In extreme cases, they create or fuel violence. If government can dispel such theories, it should do so. One problem is that its efforts might be counterproductive, because efforts to rebut conspiracy theories also legitimate them. We have suggested, however, that government can minimize this effect by rebutting more rather than fewer theories, by enlisting independent groups to supply rebuttals, and by cognitive infiltration designed to break up the crippled epistemology of conspiracy-minded groups and informationally isolated social networks. And there you have it. Um, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't quite get this paper, really. Uh, is it... No, I mean, it, did, it, it did kind of read as the sort of thing you'd expect to get plonked down on, on the president's desk, or rather some person who works... For the president, a few a few levels lower. As you hear, are my recommendations about government governmental policy as a paper in a philosophical journal. It, it seemed a bit light on the philosophizing. Good good sort of surveying, good laying out of of a, of a space and talking through the issues and so on. But I didn't. I, I kind of found myself wondering what's the point of this a lot of the time. I mean, I'm not going to comment too much on this because, as I said in the introduction. People are going to be writing about this paper for a while. In fact, the very next paper that we're going to be looking at, I believe, does touch upon this ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. So it's probably wise to leave that to Curtis when we reconvene in three weeks' time. I think what's really fascinating about this paper is the kind of openly... Ah, why not just in infiltrate conspiracy theory fora and solve the problem that way? Which... If this had simply been two academics that had no connection to the political establishment in the US whatsoever, you might go, well, that's a, that's a kooky idea. But, you know, anything's on the table when you're engaging in these discussions. But given the role that the two authors play, it suddenly goes from being a kooky idea to it's actually a little bit disturbing 
that this is one of their policy recommendations. Mm. And so we're going to see a lot of that be discussed in papers in the, for us, the next few weeks. Right on. Well, then I guess that's maybe all we should say about it for now. So uh, an interesting paper, but a bit, a bit different, perhaps. Um, and if, as you say, it's going to become significant for one reason or another, it's probably a good thing that we've talked about it. But for now, I think we've talked enough. I think we've talked enough and we should just end this episode. I agree Damn entirely. Mm, thank you, President Nixon. Uh, so, it's uh, goodbye from President Nixon. I am not a crook. And it's I'm not a crook from me. I actually am a crook. That's the wrong one, The it? Podcaster's Guide That's to the, the Conspiracy one. is Josh Anderson oh. and me, Dr. Oh. MRX Denton. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, it's just a step to the left. Your course man here is causing issue with my soundscape.